When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah, and welcome uh, to this event um, based around the famous or infamous quote by uh, Theresa May. If you believe you are a citizen of the world, you are a citizen of nowhere. A quick question just to kick us off. Who here believes they are indeed a citizen of the world? Excellent. Welcome the metropolitan elites. We are still fighting on and we fight to win. Well done. So this is a sort of rally more than a, more than a debate. A slightly more uh, serious question actually taken from David Goodhart's uh, remarkable uh, book, which we will obviously touch on hugely um, this, uh, this evening. Um, and it is a question which uh, I would like you also to answer. Uh, and this is the question. Uh, put your hand up if you agree with this proposition. And we can test the very representative British audience here with what people actually answered in this YouGov poll in 2011. So if you agree with this question, do raise your hand. Britain has changed in recent times beyond recognition. It sometimes feels like a foreign country, and this makes me uncomfortable. Who agrees with that proposition? Excellent. So I would say that's in the below 5% category. The number of people in Britain who agreed with that statement was 62%. So you are completely disconnected from the rest of the world, and I hope you can enjoy that thought as you walk home, stepping on the heads of the poor downtrodden people who live elsewhere in this great country. To my direct uh, left, though not politically, is David Goodhart, the head of, demograph- of the demography unit at the think tank Policy Exchange and the founder and former editor of Prospect magazine. Uh, his recent book, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics, certainly one of the most influential pieces of work in this debate. 
coming out post-Brexit has been uh, rightly on the Sunday Times bestseller list. To his left, David Landsman, former diplomat who ended his Foreign and Commonwealth Office career as ambassador to Greece. Uh, He also worked uh, in what was then Yugoslavia, oversaw the end of Libya's WMD programs and was ambassador to Albania, apparently a model we're going to be following after we leave the European (laughs) Union. Um, He is currently the European head of the Indian headquartered Tatar group. To his left is Elif Shavak, award-winning novelist and political commentator. She's the most widely read female writer in Turkey. She's published 15 books, 10 of which are novels, the most recent of which is Three Daughters of Eve. Welcome, Elif. And on the far left, of course, Simon Sharma, one of the UK's best-known historians um, at the moment, presenting the new Civilization series for uh, the BBC's University Uh, He is University Professor of Art, History and History at Columbia University uh, in New York. Uh, The latest of his many books is Belonging, which is the second volume of his History of Jewish People, The Story of uh, the Jews. Welcome, panel. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. I'm just going to go through that first question, and in brief order, from David to Simon... Mm -hmm. Do you believe, let's try and answer this in a sentence, we will have further time for expositions a little later, but do you believe, David, you are a citizen of the world, in a sentence? No, I do not believe I'm a citizen of the world, because to be a citizen, you have to be a citizen of a state, and I'm glad to say there is not a global state, so none of you are citizens of the world. I am very happily a citizen of the United Kingdom. David Lansman. Do you know, I I suppose I should, because um, I've felt very at home um, in every country I've lived in, that's quite a few. I'm sure most of my friends come from uh, well beyond uh, a 50-mile radius of where we're sitting now. But, do you know, I think I'd feel rather arrogant uh, if I I were to say uh, I was a citizen of the world, so no. Elif, what's your sense about your citizenship I think I'd like to borrow a metaphor from Rumi, the great poet. He used to talk about living like a drawing compass. One leg of a drawing compass is quite stable, fixed, rooted in one place. Meanwhile, the other leg draws a huge wide circle around that. So I have a very strong attachment to this country, as well as to Turkey, to Istanbul. I think that's possible. And at the same time, I see myself as a world citizen and a global soul. So you can be many different things. I can be many things at the same time. Simon, do you believe you are a citizen of the world? Yes. I'm also a British passport holder, and only a British passport holder, despite having lived in America for more than 40 years. I'm also a permanent resident alien of the United States of America, and a probably the most passionate tribal allegiance, usually historically doomed as Tottenham Hotspur Football Club as well. <laughs> um, I, I would say, but I, I do remember, and I don't quite agree with this actually, but it was very much in my, in my memory when Isaac, Isaac Deutscher, the biographer, a biographer of Trotsky, came to my Cambridge College when I was a baby Don, and someone said to me, Mr. Deutscher, rather aggressively, what are your roots? And he said, I'm a Jew, and trees have roots, Jews don't. Jews have legs. Very good. Now, 
So, David Goodhart, kick us off. Um, let's try and frame a little mm. bit of this debate. Why has it become, um, and maybe obviously touching on, on your book, the, the people from somewhere and the people from nowhere, mm. why do you think it has become such a part of our, of our discussion, both culturally and economically? Is it linked back to the events of the financial crisis and what flowed from that, or is something else going on? No, I think our society has become, our societies have become miles more open economically and culturally in the last 30 years or so. Um, and one might say that the, 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 the people I describe as the anywheres, the, uh, the people who support openness and autonomy, uh, who are comfortable with rapid social change, have basically won all the arguments in the last 30 years. Um, and we now talk about, don't we, we talk about how open v. closed has replaced the old left v. right. Um, well, I think that's a very self-serving way of looking at the world, actually. Uh, I've never met anybody who wants to live in a closed society, but a lot of our fellow citizens think that the forms of openness we've had have not served them well, economically, culturally, and so on, as we saw from that opinion poll that you described earlier. And I think what in her, uh, I'm afraid, typically clumsy way, Theresa May was pointing at a, at a very obvious truth, it seems to me. Now, of course, she could, have, could and probably should have prefaced her remarks by saying, it's fine to be internationally minded, it's fine to be internationally connected. Um, I was going to say that earlier, I, mean, I, 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 I feel very internationally connected. I lived in another European country for, for three and a half years. I can speak the language a bit rustily. Um, but... Nonetheless, she was pointing to a basic fundamental truth, which is that whether it's our freedoms, our, our welfare, particularly uh, the least well-off people in our country, and indeed just a sense of belonging, for all of those things we require successful, strong nation-states and, uh, and national social contracts. I think the, a point that I think liberals find it very hard to take on board is that you can be strongly attached to group, to nation, to locality, and also not fear or dislike the other. Now, obviously, the history of nationalism in the 19th and early 20th century suggests that, uh, you know, that, that you can also, there are also forms of nationalism that, that, that have led to that. But I think you know, we've, we've been through that, we've come out the other side. One of the great achievements of the European Union, indeed, was to kind of recreate the modern, liberal, open nation-state. Um, so I think we can have attachment and openness, uh, but openness can go too far, and I think a lot of our fellow citizens have used the opportunity of the ballot box to, uh, to, to constrain what they think as the, as the over-internationalised elites, economic and cultural. Dave, can I push you a bit on this liberal group, as, as you described, maybe the elites or whatever they might be, the people who've become detached have won all the arguments. Haven't we been having a huge debate for decades, and certainly since the large amount of European Union immigration into uh, the UK from the A8 nations, a massive debate about immigration. It's rarely off the front pages of many of our newspapers. Even if, if you go back to David Blunkett and, and Tony Blair and Charles Clark, they spoke regularly about immigration. The immigration theme, is, is, that, a one, is, that, a, is that a one argument? Politicians have simply not responded. I mean, this is 
clearly the single biggest, not the only, but the single biggest reason for, for the Brexit vote. And so, you know, we have had opinion polls have, for the last 15, 20 years, we've had consistently about 75% of the population saying immigration is either much too high or too high. And politicians have either not wanted to respond or post-2004 haven't been able to respond. So I think it is one of those things that, but there is, that is in the basket of things that have been taken out of the democratic contest and put in that, sorry, you can't decide on this. You know, independence of the Bank of England, much more judicial activism, anti-majoritarian human rights judicial activism. You know, all of those things in their own terms may be perfectly good, but they have shrunk the democratic space and you can bet your bottom dollar when something is taken out of the democratic contest, it will be decided according to the priorities of the anywhere people. Simon, the, the Liberal elites have failed, haven't they? That's what they've done. The people of Stoke-on-Trent um, voted Brexit because of the failure of politicians. Yes, I do believe yes. that's true, and I do believe... Why? I, I think David's quite right. Uh, echo bubble, um, uh, arrogance to the media, um, a sense... I, I, I answer it in this way, I'll answer it in this way with the story, as historians unfortunately do. Um, I was um, befriended rather wonderfully by the great Isaiah Berlin, mostly to try and keep me out of trouble, failed at Oxford, he used to go to tea, and he was working very, very interestingly on the... You know, modern national identity was sort of invented in the 18th century by Johann Gottfried Herder and, and the very strange uh, Johann Hamann. And Isaiah, who was an absolute Voltairian, who's one of his favorite people, was Alexander Herzen, the much-traveled Alexander Herzen. And um, I said, how can you, you know, why do you want to do research on these people who are blood and soil partisans. He said, look, Simon, it would be very nice if we all thought like the Baron de Montesquieu, but the vast majority of people don't. They, they, um, I seem to be getting back to football all the time, but this is what Isaiah said. They, they feel like football supporters, and he meant it in a seat, not that he knew anything about football, but what he meant was that nationalism actually calls to our emotional and, and visceral sensation. Now, that's how humans are wired. And I think it does actually behoove those of us who you know, imagine that the world is constructed out of thought to think about that. But I, I also want to say, um, and in that sense, there, is a, there, there was a kind of tone deafness. Um, and there was in the election which produced Donald Trump as well, I think. Although a lot of that... A lot of that election absolutely turned on race and not on a sense of economic neglect. That was much too overreported. This whole issue goes back rather wonderfully a long, long time. The great, you know, against Theresa May, I would like to put up Plutarch, really. There's an unfair contest. <laughs> In De Moralia, there is an incredibly moving, beautiful um, mini-book on exile, and Plutarch is trying to console somebody who's been banished from his home in Sardis. What Plutarch says, he says, you become part of the country by the, the use it makes of you and the use you make of it. In other words, by residence, really. And we're, we're sitting in a city where the mayor is Sadiq Khan, where I hear Michel Hussein every morning, where Saeed Javid is in one party and Chukka Amuna is in the other. That sort of world was something which was horrifying to Enoch Powell, you know, who thought it was fundamentally the possibility that we had someone like Sadiq Khan as Lord Mayor was the end of Britain. And uh, yes. guess what? It's not the end of Britain. Thank you, Simon. 
Um, Elif, you touched on this notion of... You touched, Elif, on this notion of, of your compass being rooted in, in many different places, and it, it sort of just, it just um, uh, made me remember, you know, James Baldwin's famous phrase on identity being like a flock of starlings that rests on different trees at different times. When you look at this debate, and as you've lived in Britain for a long, long time, but with um, your background, is this a debate that is peculiar to what I've sometimes described as the worried rich? It's, it's the, a peculiarity of uh, developed Western economies to be fearful of what it has brought. Or is this a debate that is had in Turkey and in other countries in a, in a similar manner? You know, what I find interesting is um, the Anglo-Saxon media discovered populism relatively recently. But in other parts <laughs> of the world, we have been discussing this for such a long time including in continental Europe, including in prosperous, relative, very prosperous countries such as Sweden, you know, or crisis-ridden countries such as Greece. And of course, Turkey is a very important case study in itself because so much of what's happening in Turkey, in my opinion, holds important lessons for anyone who cares about the future of democracy anywhere. You know, because it's, it's not only happening in Turkey. It's happening in different countries, one after another, in different degrees. And there are similarities. There are echoes. But as I, as I was listening to Simon, I was thinking about this another um, thinker from the, from the past, from history, the, the Greek thinker, uh, Diogen, Diogenes, who saw himself as, the, as a world citizen. He came actually from, um, from a town in... Black Sea, which is in, in Turkey today, in a, in a town called Sinop. So in Sinop we have his statue, right? Every year, uh, in a, you know, every couple of months, mobs of Turkish nationalists go there and they try to pull down the statue, saying, why do we have the statue of a Greek philosopher in the middle of our town? And to me, that whole scene is, is, is a good example, because... That is what nationalism does to us. First of all, it makes us forget our own history. Asia Minor, you know, Greeks, Turks, so many communities living together, contributing throughout history. There's no such thing as a homogenous identity. There never was. But that's what they make us think. That's what nationalism does to us. It really shrinks our minds, and I think it shrinks our hearts as well. So when I look at myself, yes, I'm an Istanbulite. I'm quite attached to Istanbul, but I'm also from the Aegean, from the Mediterranean. I carry in my soul so many elements from the Middle East. I'm a European by choice, by birth. This is where I was born and the values that I uphold. And I have become a Londoner and I'm very attached to this country. Why can't I be many things at the same time? So all I'm saying is we have to be careful about this all around the world as we are speaking. Extremist ideologies are saying the same thing. They're telling us we can't be multiple, we can't be plural. And that's the definition of extremism. It's anti-plural, anti-multiplicity. They're telling us, are you a Muslim? You can only be a Muslim. Are you Dutch? You can only be Dutch. Who says that? You know, our main element is water. I can be multiple things. So I think we need to start by rejecting the identity politics and the categories that they're trying to push us into all over the world. But Elif... <laughs> can you re can you recognise? And I, I hope I, I I sort of phrased David's arguments correctly. But can you recognise that the arguments that are made 
not by you, um, but by uh, people who make similar arguments, can seem very exclusionary and can seem to ignore people who are proud of their country and have a patriotism, but that doesn't mean they are therefore um, immediately um, portrayed as being extreme. That the, 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 the liberal approach to nationalism very quickly elides patriotism with extremism. I, I disagree. I, disagree. I don't think this is true. If, if I may come, come back on that. Um, I think we have to make one thing very clear. Not everyone who voted for Brexit is a xenophobe. How can anyone say that? Not everyone who voted for Trump is an Islamophobe. Or not everyone who voted in a certain way is a racist. How can we ever say that? Of course not. That's ridiculous. But here's where I differ. The populist demagogues also are telling us that they are the spokespeople for the real people. And I want us to be very careful about that dichotomy. Who are the real people? Who are the unreal people? You know, what, is, what does that mean? It's, it's a shift of elites. Yes, one elite is losing ground, but let us understand that Marine Le Pen is no less elite than the people she's criticizing. She is also part of the establishment. So many of the figures, like Viktor Orban, uh, Kaczynski, one after another in every country, they're also part of the elite, except it's a different elite with a different worldview, but they are an elite. And this is exactly what the Italian sociologist told us, Pareto, at the beginning of the 20th century. He was talking about the shift of the elites. You know, it's a pendulum, back and forth. But by no means, we shouldn't say that, oh, this is a war against of the real people against the corrupt elite. That is another false dichotomy that they're making us believe in. Thank you, Elif. David Landsman, um, what's your view on why this debate has become so much part of Britain's national conversation? And similar to Elif, you've lived many countries in the world and, and, and worked there as well um, in Europe. Um, where do you think, um, and North Africa, where, where do you think this debate sits in terms of its importance in Britain and the comparison with other places you have worked? I think that's an interesting question. I think there's two sides to it. Um, I think it is, it does seem to me, more acute here. It seems quite acute in the US. Um, I didn't feel it so acute in Greece, for example, when I lived there. I don't find it so acute in India when I visit. Now, I'm not saying I'm a great expert on either country, so um, others can disagree. But I think that there is something distinct about perhaps it's the, 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 the imperial feeling, whether it's the imperial past or the imperial quasi-present of the, of the US. Because if you've got a sense of um, my country as something revolutionary, as something um, bottom-up, as it were... Uh, you can identify with that very much more easily. My country, top-down, encourages a certain liberal thinking that there's something wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being in favour of India and Indian independence. Um, the, the business I work for um, is both uh, very socially responsible but very nationalist in a sense. It has a very strong sense of nation-building. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing if you're an Indian to want to build your nation. Um, here, I think there is, it, it's easier to distinguish... Between, uh, be between a kind of an imperial grandeur that you wish to reject and, a, uh, a, 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 and the, um, the sense of patriotism. And people can question patriotism when you've got so much, if you like, historical 
baggage. But I think there's another dimension to this, which I think goes much more widely. And I think it's actually quite important to take this beyond uh, national identity. Uh, that, that's, what, that's the presenting problem, if you like. But I think there's, a, there's, there's an issue behind that. We're in, a, we're in an age of globalization. We're in an age of increasing complexity, technical complexity and other kinds of complexity. There are more and more specialisms. There are more and more experts. It's a phrase we've heard quite a lot about. It's a knowledge economy. We're becoming more intellectualized. Greater meritocracy in many ways. And I think meritocracy breeds a sense of arrogance and it breeds a sense of entitlement. And if you're setting the rules, and we keep hearing about rule makers and rule takers, if you're setting the rules, there are some people out there who will set the rules to suit themselves. And when you set the rules to suit yourselves, you're perceived as skewing the society uh, in your favour. And then you show some arrogance to those idiots out there who don't quite understand. Uh, so we get to a situation in which people, you know, the people we all depend on, the people whose cultures we all uh, depend on, the people whose services we all depend on, begin to think that we are somehow belittling them, but we're also skewing the system in favour of ourselves and uh, against them. And then what you do, you resort to all sorts of identities, and as David, uh, I think it's fair to say, sets out his book, you, you have a, a local identity, a national identity uh, that, you, that you resort to when you feel that the world is coming in on you. So I think there is a sense in which uh, those of, and I'll say us, because we had a poll at the beginning, but I think those of <laughs> us... Uh, and you all got to be uh, super intelligent to have uh, wanted to come to Intelligence Squared in the first place. Those of us uh, in a privileged position, part of the meritocracy some way uh, or another, have to be careful about that arrogance. Uh, we have to think uh, uh, less about entitlement and more about uh, accountability. Uh, we have to uh, think... You know, it's, it's, it's very easy to... Treat, uh, treat the people out there, the public. I hate it when I, I, you, listen to, you listen to the radio and people talk about the public. You know, they're my clients out there. No, they're our fellow citizens. We are part of a society. And I think we have to think rather more uh, about uh, the relationship. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, the citizens of the world, the meritocrats. We, you know, who's going to say a meritocracy is a bad thing? But we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So... The phrase that comes to my mind, um, and it sounds very out of place, but I hope it's at least provocative, is a noblesse oblige. We know we are... I mean, I remember being told at school, don't, don't be an intellectual snob. You've got huge privileges. You've had a hugely good education. You're rather bright. Don't abuse that. And I think it's that sense of abuse which we have to guard against because, um, you know, I think I would agree with... Um, Simon, citizen of the world, a citizen of nowhere, doesn't bear huge philosophical analysis. It wasn't, I think, intended to. It was a line at a party conference, and um, full disclosure, I was present in the room when it was uttered, and it got a, uh, it, it, it got a lot of warm recognition around the room. Uh, it wasn't a philosophical um, dis uh, disquisition. So, um, but I do think we have to look in the mirror a bit. Why do you think she chose it, the Prime Minister? 
chose to say it. Well, I, 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 I don't know, but presumably it, it, it went down well. So presumably to that extent, it was just a, a political. It was statement. a, it was a, 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 a judgment call. Well, yeah. She was signalling to Brexit voters, wasn't she, that they would yeah. have a home in the in the Conservative yeah. Party. Simon, yeah, isn't, you know, Simon, isn't that Victor Orban? <laughs> it goes down very well when he describes George Soros as a rootless cosmopolitan conspiring to subvert the will of the people in Hungary. You know, he probably he's, he was a very clever man. Started out as a liberal. You know, was one of the inheritors of the post-communist regime. Uh, but he knows, of course, that is precisely the danger. The historian in me, and I'm not making crass comparisons with the rise of the Nazis, I'm really not, but you start to smell a sense in which something... You, I mean, it's, it's an elite thing to know you're superior to the slogans you mouth, um, and, you know, uh, and then you, you laugh about it, actually, at what a tremendous... Um, uptake it gets. Oh, you know, £350 million in another context on the notorious bus. Of course it was rubbish. We knew it all the time. But, you know, it, it, it so got you think people there's some, wound there's up. Some dog, there's some dog whistle. <laughs> there's always dog whistle here, is there, dog Simon, whistling. in the end? Dog whistling is the noise of our contemporary politics now. But, but Elif, I'll, one second, just to Elif and then to you, David. Yeah. Elif, yeah. I think it's also um, a pattern that we see across Europe, um, in a way, it's an indirect impact of populist movements because they are changing the language of mainstream politics. And oftentimes, politicians feel almost cornered. Uh, we've seen this pattern in Holland, like mainstream politicians all of a sudden adopting a much more nationalistic rhetoric because otherwise, Geert Wilders is going to occupy that void and you don't want him to occupy that void. So what happens is mainstream politicians start to speak in more tribalistic, if you will, tone. We see similar things. I mean, they also feel pushed in that direction. And that's the danger of populism in the long run. Because even when it's not in power, when it is in power, it's another danger. But even when it's not in power, it has the impact, it has the ability to change the tone of politics. I think what we aren't talking about is the fragility of democracy itself. So what I'm trying to say is we take it for granted sometimes, but democracy is something we constantly need to put effort into and we can very easily lose if we only reduce it to majoritarianism because from majoritarianism to authoritarianism, as we've seen in other parts of the world, it's a very short step. David, one second, one second, Simon. No, Simon, hold on, hold on, hold on. David, David, David. I mean, I... I do think that the citizens of the world do have to take some measure of blame for the fact that we have a crazy demagogue in the White House, that we will have a clown or the friend of a clown running Italy, uh, that the EU is, is partially unravelling, that the Middle East is on fire. I mean, we have had hyper-globalisation that has been supported by pretty well all the parties of centre-left and centre-right in in this last 25, 30 years of, of liberal domination, economic and cultural liberal domination. And we are seeing a rebalancing. I mean, in some ways, this is democracy working. And what I don't hear enough of is people trying to actually think hard and distinguish between 
what one might call legitimate populism and illegitimate populism. I think quite a lot of the, re, the, the rebalancing we've had uh, is, is completely legitimate and is actually an expression of moderate nationalism, of, of patriotism, as, as Elif would describe it. Moderate nationalism, I think, is, is generally speaking a force for good. It binds different kinds of people together in national societies. But I do think that, you know, that, that you know, the ordinary people of Europe are not, on the whole, xenophobes. You look at the data, there are people who are, you know, about 5 to 7% of people who really do believe pretty malevolent, malevolent things. But the vast majority of, of them are not. And they have seen the European Union suppressing even their own moderate nationalism. I mean, the very fact that you cannot... You know that, that you, sign cannot sign sign you cannot discriminate in favour of a British national citizen when it comes to the labour market, the welfare state, social housing, etc., because of, of the principle of free movement. I mean that offends against a common sense idea of moderate nationalism. Simon, isn't the issue that David touched on? Both Davids have touched on that there has been an arrogance to the arguments made by the Liberals. Let's. let's describe them as that, I'm, you might understand that description, and that the, the people who do not agree with some of those uh, positions on things like free movement of people, on the fact that I can be a citizen anywhere in Europe, have felt themselves to be ignored. Well, um, I actually think there is a discussion too. I, 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 I was actually interested to have examples from David's, uh, David Lansman's point that there's a kind of constant stream of condescension, superior arrogance by, by supporters of Remain or by as it, you know, people who think you, you can be citizens or belong to many different places. But if it's, if it's whether or not there ought to be a discussion about immigration, I'm absolutely in favour of that. You know, but what I don't recognise is, and I, 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 you know, what I absolutely don't recognise is characteristic of those of us who actually have a more open attitude to immigration, um, particularly sort of in the United States, as um, sort of this endless sneering. I mean, if the accusation is that we um, are arguing for meritocracy and education, wow, I plead guilty to that. Um, all together. And let me, you know, again, without wearying you with too many American examples, but this is where I live. Um, last week or the week before that, the Immigration Service in America changed, took out of its mission statement um, the, the sentence that the Immigration Service was designed and instituted to help realize the dream of a nation of immigrants. That was the title of Jack Kennedy's book, but it was also the substance of what made America special. All the way back to Hector Saint-Jean-Crevco in the 1780s, who said this is the one country in the world where it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter what religion you profess or none, <coughs> as long as you subscribe to certain political democratic principles. And so far from... You know, I think, again, David Landisman said, well, America's sort of bottom-up nature... Was that, did I understand you correctly, David? No, I, I thought, I, or maybe I misunderstood you, that you said that's why it has a very... It's likely to have a strong populist... No, I, no, oh, okay, I, I did I misunderstand you. My thought, rather, was that for countries um, with power, either have yeah. power or have had power, yeah. uh, there's, there's likely to be a difference mm. between the approach 
uh, where you're, you're looking at a, a, your feeling of superiority and then uh, you're, reject, you're resisting that. You're, you're, you're yes, it's different from sense of India and Britain. Yeah, are, well, they're different. Yeah, are, but I don't think most British people have a sense of superiority any longer. We have a sense of specialness. No, no. Yeah, the, um, you know, superiority uh, has been replaced by, you know, British national identity is no longer a sort of sense of we are, we are top dog nation, as it might have been in the 18th, 19th. Well, I I just, if, if, if I could, just, just yeah, very sorry, briefly. Hang on, David. But I didn't Simon, th- yes. Thank you. Very, yes. I, I promise to be brief. <laughs> um, because that's, that Elif. anecdote about the yes. immigration service yes. was... Um, to do with something which is front and centre in American life right now, and that's the status of the 800,000 children who were brought in by parents who had illegally immigrated and have known no other country except the United States, but they'd lived in this you know, legal no-man's land. And a proposal, really, as a result of an extremely kind of suddenly nativist, exclusionary... Um, uh, surge of in, in the United States is to actually end up deporting them. Um, and that seems to me an extraordinary... They have become American in the Plutarchian sense by living there, by becoming part of the community. My, that was, my, my grandparents were legal, as far as I know. One set from Turkey, the other set from Lithuania. They became absolutely British you know, by living here, by becoming British. So the citizen of the world bit inside me believes in the nobility of the immigrant experience and the possibility of having had that immigrant ancestry and passionately embracing, you know, British culture and British patriotism. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence.
Could I come to, just before we go to the audience, the, the question of economics and whether or not two things are being confused here. That um, our notion, our sudden notion that um, the citizens of nowhere, the liberal elites, however you might des describe them, um, have become a huge problem is not actually a problem of culture and society and where you belong and rootedness, but is actually a problem of pretty straightforward economics. People were willing to put up with the fact that there were elites in the world when every year they were slightly more wealthy than they were the year before and they believed that their children would be slightly wealthier than they are. When that broke down in 2008 with the financial crisis and real incomes have been falling in large parts of developed economies, people then started to look for other things to possibly blame, but actually isn't the fact that if we fixed the economics, many of these other issues would become much less toxic? No, um, I think it is much more culture than it is economics. I mean, that's what most of the, most of the work on on populist voting patterns uh, will tell you. Um, although I think economics and culture are also very, following on from what David was saying, economics and culture are often very hard to disentangle from each other. And I think possibly the, 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 the single, you know, if I was asked to give one reason for the Brexit vote, um, leaving immigration aside, I would say the declining status of non-graduate employment. Um, my, my little joke about um, Brexit, if you don't mind a Brexit joke. I blame Brexit on the masses. Mass immigration and mass higher education. The fact that we have, as David was saying, that we have created this, um, the kind of gold standard of human esteem has become kind of one form of human aptitude amongst many others. Cognitive ability, the ability to pass exams and to think analytically and so on. And we have so elevated that that we've, uh, somebody wrote me a letter who'd read my book, said a good society has a balance between the three H's, the head, the hand, and the heart. And, and I think, it sounds a bit naff, but I think that is so true in a way, and that we have kind of removed status and meaning from the other, the, the other two H's. Um, when he said heart, he meant we were talking about labour markets, really, and what he really meant was emotional intelligence. Um, and as David was saying, I mean, we need, I mean, we will, I think, see a switch. I mean, lots of jobs to do well, you require a degree of emotional intelligence, you know, to, to teach children, to look after old people, to, to work in, 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 in the health sector. Um, and we've historically undervalued a lot of those jobs, partly because they used to be done by women in the home and they've just moved out and, uh, into, the, into the public realm and, and have, have historically been undervalued. And I think one of, the, one of our great tasks, in a way, is to revalue those jobs. And to, obviously we don't, want to, we don't want to dismiss or undervalue cognitive ability, but to kind of even out the playing field a bit more. So you know, half of the population, by definition, are always in the bottom half of the cognitive ability spectrum. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we, and, and I think a lot of people feel that too much, and also the, 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 the traducing of so many traditional lifestyles, you know, socially conservative views that, you know, you just have to listen to, the, to, to Radio 4 for a week, and particularly the comedy programs, to, to realise you know, how, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of metropolitan worldview does hold many, you know, perhaps indeed most lives in this country in a degree of contempt. Um, and, and I think, you know, we need, we, need a, we need an evening out of status as much as we do of money. I Excellent. Say. I'd like to make um, a little bit there. Yes. So let's have some questions. Uh, uh, Mike Wan here would be fantastic to start us off. Uh, good evening. Thank you very much. Uh, Chris Choa from Urban Land Institute. 
I have to say, I, I feel a little bit like a fish out of water. I'm the son of a Chinese father, a French mother, uh, descended by, from a Sephardic Jew from India, a French passport, first-generation American. But I am delighted to live in London, proud to be a Londoner, and very grateful to be a Londoner. So uh, it's an amazing discussion, and I feel like I'm in London, but I feel like I'm everywhere else. But the question... Um, so far, a lot of the discussion has been about uh, maybe the failure, uh, in some ways, of direct democracy. And it seems like we've talked about how nationalism uh, works because it appeals to the emotions, and the alternative is maybe demagoguery. But isn't really this also a watershed moment about democracy itself? Uh, are there models, including technocratic models, which seem to be working better in many parts of the world better than democracies. Well, Elif, this is something that you have touched on as, as saying, I suggest you were saying no uh, and beware. But the fact is, and after the financial crisis, certainly the notion that democracy and capitalism had to go together in some manner, that free markets needed democracy to operate, China has surely revealed that that is not necessarily the case. And the gentleman raises the point that actually, Absolutely. are there other models that people yeah. are starting to think, well, a bit of discipline maybe, but frankly, it's better than this mess we're in. Yeah, and that is something I, I totally understand, and thank you for your question. But what worries me is, especially as you travel throughout Middle East, Turkey, the discourse has changed radically. In the past... Um, whether you call it an elite or not, but the political establishment constantly talked about being part of Europe or somehow it was as if the direction was clear. You know, Europe never saw us as part of Europe. That's another thing. But there wasn't this much talk about democracy not being adequate for our part of the world. And now this is the only rhetoric that you hear across the Middle East. In other words, they're telling us, you know what, democracy it comes from Western Europe. It's not in our history. It's not our tradition, our customs. We come from a different background. We don't need them anyhow. Let's go towards Shanghai Pact. What is Shanghai Pact? China, Russia, uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. In the right place to be if you don't care about human rights. I'm sorry. So I, I, don't, I don't want that to be the direction, you know. And the, the rhetoric is, well, maybe we should have technocrats led by a strong leader, this emphasis on strong leader. If we don't have a strong leader, we will go astray. And we want to revive our golden history, our golden past, and that's the notion of the empire kicks in. You see how everything adds up. And my fear is... Around the world, people are losing their faith, their trust in the very concept of democracy. That is very dangerous. Simon, do you, is there... We can understand quite clearly Ellis' points about the negatives around other types of models. But Simon, is there in history a notion that liberal democracies could take some uh, lessons from in terms of how they operate, if people are thinking to themselves, I believe democracy has failed. Um, no, you want to argue against the failure of democracy. Viktor Orban has invented the phrase, which he's proudly attached to Fidesz party, of illiberal democracy, as though illiberal democracy, as though it's not an oxymoron. Uh, also adopted by Kaczynski in, in Poland. This is a horrifying departure. 
an illiberal democracy would not let us have this evening here. An illiberal voting regime, as in Russia, would not make this possible. So far from de Democrats beating themselves up about the terrible failings that they're supposed to have not listening to the people or whatever else, they need to go back and read Areopagitica, John Milton's <laughs> argument for the freedom of opinion. They need to read Jefferson's doctrine actually about the separation of church and state. They need to stand up for the independence of the judiciary in particular and uh, not the politicization of the judiciary. There is a heroic tradition of defending democracy for which people have died over centuries. And now is not the time to scuttle off and say, oh dearie me, maybe illiberal democracy and a strong leader in the is the answer. That way lies the neutering of freedom. David, is there... David Goodhart and David Langdon. David Goodhart, same question. Is, has, you've, you've talked about the failure of, of, of liberalism. And David Lansbury, you talked about the arrogance of, of some of the ways that the arguments were put. But David Goodhart, is there a way that democracy can be not made illiberal, but that democracy has failed as well, these people? Because we have elections in Britain. Um, uh, we are a democratic nation. How did our democracy allow, in your argument, these liberal elites to get away with it for so long? Um, because... Um uh, people's standards of living were kind of rising slowly. Um, th and, th and this domination, I think this, this kind of division, the my kind of anywhere, somewhere worldview division, I mean, is something that's only relatively recently emerged as, as, as powerfully as it exists now. Um, so I mean, it's only going back 20, 25 years, I think, that we've had such a kind of monolithic domination of cultural and economic liberalism. And people... Um, you know, their, their traditional voting allegiances stuck for quite a long time. Then they gradually, you know, a lot of people, a lot of working class people moved away from the Labour Party and voted UKIP. Um, and you, 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 similar changes had happened much earlier, as, as you said earlier, in continental Europe. Um, but like I say, I mean, you know, in some ways, populism is democracy working, so long as um, we, you know, so long as we can distinguish between the, the legitimate and the illegitimate. Now, I mean, I think we're also in danger of crying wolf on this. I mean, um, with the partial exception, as Simon Wright points to the, to the dangerous developments in Hungary and Poland, but in much of the rest of continental Europe, what have the populists, you know, in what way has the open society been threatened by populism? I don't think, at, you know, the Swiss have banned minarets. Well, so it's slight inconvenience to, to Swiss Muslims. But, I mean, we had the ridiculous burkini business, but, I mean, that was kind of laughed out of court, literally. Well, hang on a minute. Um, there, were, there were racist <coughs> posters in Swiss elections about black sheep and white sheep. Well, I mean, I mean that's, it's rather more than a few, you know, no, I don't minarets so. were banned. Um, I mean, there, there, there has been a rise in, in nativism and possibly racism in some countries. I don't think particularly in this country... Um, you know, I mean, it's still a tiny proportion of people believe that you have to be white to be truly British. In, you know, I think so, eight or nine percent of British people believe that. I mean, I do not think that we're on, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, on the verge of a wave of sort of xenophobic racism. Uh, there are issues in some countries, but I think we've got to stop crying wolf about it. And, and you know, and and anywhere technocratic elites have got to respond to the issues. Um, otherwise, we 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 end up with with Brexit and things. 
things like that. You know, we've unbalanced, we've unbalanced, we've overdomed, we've had a period of liberal overreach, and there is now a reaction against it. And we need to make sure that that reaction doesn't take ugly forms as it does in some places. Uh, number two, and then number four, yep. Oh, hello. Hi. Uh, so, yeah, shall I? Nisa uh, Gerin. So before I offend anybody, uh, I would like to provide some information about my background. So I'm an old Yugoslavian, uh, born in Germany, first five years there, 17 years Turkey, two years Japan, one year United States, and last 10 years I have been a UK citizen. So my question is, especially uh, under developing countries or developing countries, uh, the citizens of these countries very much are attached to their nationality, and no matter how many years they spend abroad or what nationalities they have afterwards, they will remain Yugoslavian, they'll remain Turkish. So what is your opinion about this? What do you think the reasons for this is? Why people feel so attached to their nationality, maybe in more developing worlds, if you think that's true. David Landsman. Well, I, I think that was the point which I obviously inadequately tried to make earlier, which is that um, I, th I think for our, um, for our uh, intellectual elites or whatever we like to call them, in countries which are uh, very strong or have been very strong and have a long history of domination one way or another, we are understandably uh, rather wary of that and we want to aim off for it and we want to emphasise the bad as well as the good. If you come, I think, from a country which, which, where you feel that you've had to fight for your independence, you've had to fight against the colonialists or against the stronger powers over a period of time, it's much easier to have a coherent national uniform view that, you know, my country is a great thing and I'm going to, I'm going to fight for it. And Simon, just very briefly, we'll get some... Very briefly, of course, every, every nation state has its own official history. It's the same in Israel, in Turkey, in France, in Russia. But where the difference is, if it's a proper democracy, you walk into a bookstore, you can find many books that question or criticize or challenge official historiography. Nobody puts those writers in jail or, or sues them. Um, with regards to belongings, I think that's, that's a beautiful thing. You know, you can... Um, you can, as, as we've spoken before, feel attached to many, many places at the same time and carry that in your soul. I really don't see that as a, as a conflict. Where the trouble starts is when immigrant communities close up and, and become more inward-looking. That is when more nationalistic, religious, extremist views find a fertile ground to flourish. And it becomes much harder for us women Overall, I think when societies go backwards and when they tumble into authoritarianism, nationalism or extremism, women have much more to lose than men. So we have to be more conscious about that. I mean, it's totally fine to have multiple belongings, but open up, you know, the interaction and, and the emphasis on plurality, that you can have plural belongings, that's why we need it. Thanks, Aleph. Uh, number four. Hi. Hi. Uh, Kavanti Mitchell, American expat. Uh, I wrote this down to make sure I didn't forget any. Uh, if you define citizenship as a status granted by a state, you can understand rights, responsibilities, and the mechanisms for changing one's society as emanating from the state and from a particular uh, location. What entity grants global citizenship? What are the rights and responsibilities of the global citizen? And what mechanisms allow a global citizen to enact change in their global society? Apart from Davos, man, who sets, who sets the rules? This gentleman asks, 
if you are a global citizen, what are your rights and responsibilities and who sets them? Well, I, I, I don't think those of us who um, identify... It's a very good question, of course, actually, mm. but I don't think... Um, it, it, it's like a question in contract law or something. I mean, it, I, I don't think any of us who actually, in some uh, general sense, are voting for empathy, uh, you know, have really... Um, uh, certainly, I'm not wanting to sort of uh, produce institutional sketches, although maybe your, your serious and, uh, um, question will lead me to ponder this more. But in a much more wider sense, of course, actually, there are all sorts of things happening which call on our sense of mutual, let's say, uh, mutualism, Adam Smith's absolutely lovely phrase in the theory of moral sentiments, the most obvious being climate change and the Paris Accord, and after all the pragmatic bashing and the withdrawing from making states absolutely formally obliged to reduce uh, carbon emissions, something was, really, um, something was really produced which suggested a degree of constructive mutuality. And it was precisely because of that that Donald Trump made such a tremendous dramatic performance about walking out of the global climate accord. For him, it's always as he's doing with mutual trade agreements. The psychology, really, of going it alone, of having your country first, of not understanding that in the modern world you're necessarily um, need to come to sort of mutual understanding of what's in the common good is, is really what's at stake. And as I say that, I know that that barely answers your wonderfully formulated yes. question. But on the other hand, if you're looking at the choices that are on Donald Trump's desk, whether or not he's going to define absolutely what he needs to do, exclusively in American interests, even, even when, you know, there was, there was a moment last week where his own cabinet said, well, surely you'll think about... Um, cutting a break for your allies like Canada and this country in terms of not imposing a 25% tariff on steel and 10% aluminium. And he said, no, not at all. There are not going to be any exceptions. So it's that, that sense of being in the same boat. I know it's wishy-washy. It may be a piece of kind of liberal elitist superiority. But, you know, if we're not in the same boat, we're going to drown in the Thank same you, wreck, I think. Where's that? Yes, sorry. Yes, sir. Yes, hello. What would you do with the people who don't feel like they have a country to be a citizen of? Excellent. So, um, <laughs> David Lansman, what would you do with the people who don't feel they have a country to be a citizen of? Well, I think we've... Um, the, the international community over the, over the last 50, 60, 70 years has tried uh, to set up structures and systems to find a place of refuge for people who uh, have nowhere to go. I assume you mean because they physically have nowhere to go rather than because they, they think in their minds that, they have, that they're not comfortable where they are. But, um, and and you know, how is that done? That is done by individual countries in the end getting together, signing a convention and agreeing to take their responsibility. Simon, what about the people who feel to be not a citizen of any nation? How is it yeah, that they well, could be supported in this debate? Yeah, they're desperately... I mean, I mean, I'm so glad that question was raised. They're desperately in search of anywhere. Um, if we, you know, look at the three-quarters of a million Rohingya 
who, you know, um, until quite recently assumed that they were part of Myanmar, part of Burma, and don't want to be accommodated by the Bangladeshis. Uh, so they're absolutely in a terrible limbo. I will say actually that like issues of climate change, the other two great issues, if you're looking at it with your history professor's hat on, there are three enormous long-term dominant problems over the next half century, century. One is the fate of the ecology of the earth. The other is the immense and growing distance between the well-off and the not well-off of the, of the world. And if we're saying, well, the well-off nations can actually shut their doors, they're, they're just simply, uh, that's going to be a kind of un unsustainable position. Um, and thirdly, there is this great tidal wave of migration, which is just not, you know, really going to go away in, over, over the long term. So, we'll, with, without being too apocalyptic and, and crying wolf too much, these are three actually profound upheavals that are going to affect long-term history. So, the issue of the displaced, the uprooted, the flotsam and jetsam of humanity is profound, and it's going to get more profound. A summation. Are you pessimistic or optimistic about this debate about citizenship and nationalism? Well, I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic about the fact we were able to have uh, polite disagreements in a liberal democracy here this evening, and thank you very much for it. I'm pessimistic, along with Elif, I so endorse her point about being too complacent about moderate nationalism staying moderate. And if it's, if it's equality of being, you know, um, if I'm over-intellectualizing this or an exception, I don't care. Two things have really happened just in the last two weeks, which were extraordinary to me and which were unthinkable. have been not produced by fringe 10% parties. Jean-Marie Le Pen's uh, memoir has become a bestseller in France. And the party that's going to dominate the right-wing coalition in Italy is devoted to resurrecting the memory of Benito Mussolini. If that's where moderate nationalism takes us, it's time to fight back for citizens of, of openness. Elif, very briefly. Pessimistic or optimistic, maybe after listening to this debate, I don't know, which, is, <laughs> which you feel more or less optimistic? I guess I, I like Gramsci's approach. You know, he used to talk about the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the heart. And I, I think we need both because that is part of the problem, isn't it? This pendulum back and forth. Please remember, early 2000s, there was so much optimism, both in academia and media, article after article, predicting how we were all going to become one big global village, nationalism was going to disappear, religious was going to, religion was going to become redundant, and it was the triumph of the liberal order, end of ideology, end of history. You know, we read so many articles in that direction. 
And now, in 2018, it's the exact opposite. Um, complete denigration of liberal democracy, of, of the word liberal suddenly became a negative thing. From one end, we have swung to the other end, and we're in this you know, wave together. So I think we need to step outside this dichotomy. Let's be half pessimistic, half optimistic. We have enough reasons to be pessimistic. But also, we've only talked about how states are going to collaborate. I'm not as interested in the collaboration of states, but in the collaboration of citizens, of civil societies. You know, the kind of collaboration and solidarity that goes beyond national boundaries among women, among, minor, among minorities, among youth. This is what we need right now. So that kind of global solidarity and global sisterhood is something that I passionately believe in. Thank you, Elif. David, David Landsman, just very aware of the time I would have been off the Today programme by now. So David Landsman, um, pessimistic or optimistic about the future of this debate? I'm optimistic. Um, we mustn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There are good citizens of Britain, there are bad citizens of Britain. There are good citizens of the world, there are bad citizens of the world. We've got to look, look in the mirror and remember, we've got to be accountable to our fellow citizens. So we have to make the effort to explain. We mustn't treat them as stupid. David Goodall. Um, I mean, two very quick points. All, I mean, I think the alternative to uh, the kind of moderate nationalism that I've been talking about is not some sort of global version of the European Union. It is the kind of extreme nationalism um, that, that, that you two fear. Um, so we, you know, we have got to, 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 to hang on to the best things that we've got. The other thing, the kind of more philosophical final point I'd like to make is that I do think you know, if everyone is my brother, then sort of nobody is my brother. We simply don't have the, the, the kind of emotional and the financial resources to, 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 to spread that. We have to, we believe, everybody believes in the civilized world now, in the, in the moral equality of all human beings. But we don't believe we have the same obligations to all human beings. And I think that is sort of the citizen of the world fallacy. I just want to end a very short quote from Jonathan Franzen, who puts this absolutely brilliantly, the US novelist. Trying to love all of humanity may be a worthy endeavor, but in a funny way, it keeps the focus on the self, on the self's own moral or spiritual well-being, whereas to love a specific person and to identify with his or her struggles and joys as if they were your own, you have to surrender some of yourself. Thank you. Thank you. We all love each other in here. That's a good thing. Thank you for your patience. Thank you to Simon, Ellis, David and David. Thank you very much as well for you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>